1: My name is Jari Boland. Welcome to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. On this podcast, we're going to take a deep dive into the traits, values, beliefs, and skills of all sorts of entrepreneurs to learn how to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient world. Let's get started. Stephanie Lapierre, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: You're quite welcome. You're quite welcome. You are the CEO and founder of Tealbook, uh, the Most interesting thing on the planet, which happens to be supplier (laughs) data. Yeah, of
2: course. You're a Uh, disruptor. Yes.
1: Yeah. It's interesting because you started doing this back in 2014, and I can only imagine some of the awesome stories over the last couple of years about procurement and just like supply chain shenanigans, which just must be mind-blowing. And I'm so looking forward to talking to you about that. We talked a little bit about my background. Before we hit record, was in the semiconductor business. I have a very great appreciation for literally making sure that you can buy things appropriately and get the best deal and everything. But before we dig into all the nitty gritty, as I always like to say, why don't you tell us how you got to do, what you're doing today? And most
2: people ask me like, why that? Because it's complicated and we'll go Mm. into it a little bit more. And some days I wish I started an underwear company or I don't know. (laughs) Do something that's really simple. I'm sure it's not simple, but in my mind, some days it's a lot less complex. It's a massive puzzle that I've taken on. And it started with a moment in 2007. And I had started a consulting business called Matchbook that had the premise to help companies find innovation. Prior to that, I was in marketing and really competitive brand. And I was like, a lot of suppliers were contacting me saying that they're innovative and 90 of them were not. I was like, how do you find true innovation when you need to differentiate either your product or, And so I I launched this company and I was at a client at Johnson & Johnson who said, Steph, you have to meet this supplier. They're super innovative. They're great. They just spun off from another company. And she grabbed a binder and spent 10 minutes looking for a business card. And this massive binder filled with pamphlets. And she probably had that under her desk for 20 years. And she goes, I can't remember their name. As soon as I see their card, I'll remember it. And I remember having to catch a flight, and I was like, Kim, just send me their contact information. Like, all good. And she's like, no, I'll find it. And finally, when she found it, she gave it to me and says, write their contacts and give it back to me because I don't want to lose their contact information. And shoved the card back, and the binder went back under her desk. And my drive to the airport, I was just like, wow. Like, the only reason she thought of this company is because I was in her office. It took her 10 minutes to find the information. This is a company that she believes has helped differentiate her business, and the mothership, company, J and J, in itself could not tap into this knowledge because it was in a binder under her desk and in her head. And they were going through a big consolidation effort, spending millions of dollars with one of the large consulting firms to reduce their supplier base by fifty percent, with no data. Right. So they're making decisions based on spend and how to consolidate these suppliers into the bigger, larger companies, which basically eradicated all this investment in small diverse innovative suppliers that could deliver value but they just said didn't have any visibility on the flip side i was seeing that for suppliers like them in order to get visibility across one customer let alone multiple customers that it requires an incredible amount of business development effort just to be just to be noticed meanwhile if you could leverage what they've done for this company and this brand or this business they could get a lot better visibility faster so it started there the notion of your black book of business, but that's digitized, that's valuable, that's accessible by everyone in the organization and by the enterprise started the concept in my mind. And then I spent nine years trying to kill the idea and build my consulting business. And my consulting business started to morph more into strategic sourcing, which then started to morph into building procurement functions for hyper-growth companies, where it was a clean slate. It was like, hey, we can build good procurement like making it transparent, enabling, we can make it scalable. And as soon as we start introducing systems and tools that depended on good data and depended on suppliers to come to the portal, we start seeing that it was actually really hard to achieve data quality without an enormous amount of manual effort. And the dependency on suppliers to come to our portal kept failing. And then as soon as you add more systems and more tools, Now you end up with an ecosystem of disparate data that's not good and no way to unify to give the enterprise more visibility. I was thinking like these companies are spending hundreds to billions of dollars on their supplier base and they don't know who they do business with and they can't use this as levers to achieve better results. And if they could, it would be massive. We're talking hundreds of millions of dollars in opportunities that are being lost because they don't know who their suppliers are. They know the top ones, but even then. And then the sheer amount of information they need to collect across the entire life cycle of these third-party relationship, from sourcing to even going through the RFP, to negotiating, to onboarding, to put them in your financial system, to pay them, to analytics. I was like, if we could have a unified view of who you do business with, if we could automate a lot of this, that would be a massive opportunity. And so nine years... Eight years ago or so, I decided to start putting the piece of the puzzle together because I was working with a large company in Silicon Valley that just didn't have a solution. And it was great for consulting hours because my team spent 16 weeks just to clean up in one category what was baseline. Wow. And I knew it's this company that sat across SAP and LinkedIn
1: and
2: Facebook and Salesforce did not have a solution. And I validated that they did not have a solution. I was like, I think I need to do this. And this is a time where cloud technology was starting to get more mainstream in the enterprise. And then the way I started initially was more the LinkedIn concept. Let's build a platform. Let's get all the business to put their information. But right. the promise that we'll distribute the same information to multiple customers so they'll be motivated yep. to put their information in. And they did it. It worked. Oh my gosh. It's not the speed and the scale that we needed to deliver value to the customer. And so that's when... You know, part of the journey and what's really just my was mind blowing is my introductions to AI machine learning, even yep. back then. Yep. To say, hey, we can actually build on GCP, we can start leveraging some of the BERT models that exist to start automating the collection of information on businesses without relying on the businesses to come to our portal. And that was to me like the most game changing moment. And what's really, I can talk about all the struggles of educating customers on AI ML seven years ago. <laughs> yeah, I can and only
1: ex- imagine like, what it was like.
2: Exactly. And so the combination of COVID and Black Lives Matter and ESG targets and inflation and AI, it's all the compounding opportunities for us to be able to capitalize on a lot of trends that are happening in the market that we, we can leverage. Yeah.
1: Wow. <laughs> AI seven years ago. I can't even imagine the huh. Oh, what the, what this what? I mean, now it's. I was
2: like, you want me to put my data where? You exactly. know, will never go in the cloud.
1: Exa- um, oh yeah, I didn't even yeah. think of that. Even today, some people aren't fully in the cloud because they're so paranoid about the security data. for good reason. I, there's still some issues that need to be sorted out. But yeah, boy, back then, just trying to convince someone like yeah, this AI thing.
2: I explained to what investors what I was doing was like yeah. <laughs>
1: They have no clue. They don't Are even you, have a clue today.
2: Not really. We have a SaaS application today now. It, just, it yeah. was really hard to explain. It was really hard to explain to a pretty immature function being procurement, what we were doing. And so we had to find use cases that we could deliver more tangible value. And we started focusing on building applications to deliver on use cases, which was part of the building block. Also a little bit of a mousetrap because... When you sell to a functional team to do a job, it doesn't fix all the company. The company data, it fixes, it allows that functional team to do the job. Meanwhile, data for supply, for third-party suppliers, has hundreds of use cases across the enterprise. That's a learning in how we've evolved now, and our technology, and our messaging. But it's, it's been a very complicated business to build. <laughs> there's no question.
1: Well, there's no doubt. There's no doubt. I, my day job is B 2 B2B sales and marketing strategy normally for like private equity roll-ups where hey we've got all the private equity buys a bunch of companies mm-hmm. together and i actually have some experience with procurement and related to construction companies we've done some work for and it's just a mind-boggling the complexity and then you add in the different verticals like government like local governments like big federal government and then all the rules about Tier one, tier two, do you meet these require? It's just mind-numbing that anyone can even fill the paperwork out to get paid.
2: A lot of manual. Yeah. And it's an incredible use case for AI, right? There's yeah. Oh, yeah. no effort being done. That's energy and time and resources wasted on collecting information and not using information to drive better outcomes. And yeah. so, again, colliding into being a good opportunity, but definitely harder to in the early days to explain we did a lot of webinars on what is machine learning, what is a i yeah, yeah. in fact, oh, we don't have to do that anymore, which is a good news but yeah. now, oh, so are you like chad g p t no
1: yeah, a little bit, maybe no, not so much
2: wow, yeah
1: wow, so what how did the name teal book come about? I'm curious so there's this
2: book, right? It was this binder that this lady Kim had, and it's the notion of your black book, your book of suppliers being digitized and the teal enterprise is typically a more transparent type of enterprise. So oh, bring that transparency to your book of third-party providers oh. that you could leverage it or optimize it across the entire organization. And if on the cloud, and if we could aggregate and anonymize the data, it would not only ben- benefit J and J, it would benefit a GSK and Merck Pfizer, yeah. and then across all sectors. What I didn't know at the time, and I thought because my business, my consulting business, was primarily focused in pharmaceutical and biotech. I wasn't sure if this was a problem that was in all sectors. I thought maybe there's some sectors that are more sophisticated or advanced. And now we know that this is a problem that inflicts every single sector. There's not one single company in the world that has data quality. They may have spend data because they can automate invoice. And even that may not be great because they may not have classification data. But I typically ask an enterprise, what's the quality of your overall third-party provider data they'll give me a two to six six being spent only and then I say what do you do today to collect this information and then they'll tell you all the things that they're doing and the third-party service providers that they're using to clean the data classify it they'll talk about all the third-party source of data they're buying from dnb and etc yep. yep. and then they'll talk about the infrastructure that they're building and then the investment in machine learning teams yeah. To work on bad data. And you're yes. just like, yeah. and to get a three or a four out of five and the, the value proposition is like, what if you could reduce all of what you just explained, automate it and get to a six, a seven or eight, we'll never get to 10. But what if we can progressively get you closer to 10? Like what yeah. would be the value and the opportunities for the organization? And that's usually when the light bulb goes on. And so our whole mission is to make quality data easy for the enterprise on their when it comes to their third party providers and giving the enterprise who have influence, who have buying power, the opportunity to leverage their data to deliver better results for the business, but also do better for the world. How do they spend money to influence their spend with small diverse businesses? How are they helping both communities? How are they putting their capital to businesses that follow their commitment to sustainability or carbon neutral. There's a lot of opportunities, but if you don't know your supplier base and you don't know who those suppliers are and you can't, you don't know where to shift some of that spend, it makes it really difficult. And from a mission perspective, we think we can have a really powerful influence in helping those organizations do the right things faster.
1: Yeah, no, totally. I I, Part of my volunteer effort is I'm a commissioner with the San Francisco Public Library, and which means what do you not do yeah exactly it seems that way a lot of people I don't do poetry not a poet (laughs) so that's but we've got obviously budgetary responsibility we have to approve the budget and everything and it's funny because like procurement and or budgeting scope of work like qualifying vendors and the city's got its own shenanigans with that which I can't even begin to understand but a lot of times what is that the bids for things go to massive companies because they've got the three to four people that know how to game the system. To be honest, it's a game. Because yeah. when I was on another commission, the SFMTA, we were talking about, hey, this contract, it was a massive contract. It's probably like $400 million contract. Hey, how many people bid on this? Just one. I'm like, oh, that's great. Like, clearly they're the only ones that met all the criteria you're just like what does that it just seems wrong if you're a government organization in in some cases and you want to spend the people's money that you should be really try really hard to get that you know and they do have programs for that don't get me wrong and but they also have criteria that some of these like minority owned businesses will never can never meet they just can't they just like structurally not there you just like you want more equity and inclusion and diversity in your supplier base yet you say you do that you have programs but they can never get into the tier 1 because they just don't have the infrastructure and i'm just curious you've see all these suppliers you see what best practices are i think you even do ratings and stuff is there a way to educate folks to be like hey if you want to be this tier 1 we've looked at all these suppliers in the world we understand what all the requirements are and hey, by the way, here's the playbook, boom, or education, because that's what I see is what this also is very powerful. You mentioned machine learning and AI and pulling it all together and really automating the work that should literally no one should spend their time on. A machine should do it. It's just, it's worthless work. It adds no value, but probably from that learning, again, I'd love your thoughts on this because I think this is a game changer for a lot of organizations.
2: I'd say in the early days, we were much more focused on the suppliers because we needed the suppliers to come in to Tailbook to populate their information. And so this type of education and the value proposition for them to come to one place and build a social currency across multiple customers was really strong. We shifted that because the dependency on suppliers did not have the scale that we needed and we shifted to AI. We don't need the suppliers to come to Tailbook to populate their data. And so they can, traditionally right now, they can look at their profile, they can validate, they can add to it. So I do think there's an opportunity to educate them. One of the things that we do is help our customers understand their spend with small diverse businesses. It's a great use case. It's a great use case to start building your data foundation because it's so manual, the work that needs to be done to report small diverse suppliers. It's high value from a board shareholder perspective. Especially if you get funding from the federal government or you get sell into contract for the, co- the, the federal government, you need to report. But in terms of priorities, it's how can we reduce the amount of work and get a better baseline and have a yeah. bigger impact and then spend more time helping those small, diverse businesses understand how to do business better with us yeah. versus us doing the education. And so we do... Tier one for our customers, it's a great use case, especially since Black Lives Matter. A lot of customers yep. were not regulated, but need, they wanted to understand where they're spending and make a bigger impact, could use our technology. And what's really powerful is when we give a better baseline because we're looking at 100% of the suppliers and you don't need to figure out which suppliers are diverse, what's their contact information, calling them, asking them to put a certificate in a portal, we automate yep. all that. Yep. And so it gives you a really clean baseline, an accurate baseline. And then we also look for businesses that are small and diverse, but they're not certified. That's over 95% of businesses that qualify to be women-owned, black-owned, LGBT-owned, veteran-owned are not certified. And often it's because they don't know, or they don't see the upside, or it's too much money and time. And so with that, we can show our customers like, hey, there's another 800 suppliers here or 5,000 suppliers that look like they're meeting the requirements based on the size of the organization or we find in their information that they have women owned somewhere or they've been certified before. And so that gives our customers a pipeline and they can invite those suppliers to self-certify at no cost through an mm-hmm. authentic process. And so that gives them the opportunity to then do the education. And so we do have templates for them. They can help educate why they need to self-certify, what's the benefit to them. There's a huge competitive advantage to be certified when you're going through certain bids. And this, the third piece is we automate how tier one suppliers can also get their baseline. How much money are they spending with small diverse businesses that meets the, how their clients are actually reporting? And so automating that makes it more accessible to your tier one suppliers who may have never thought about doing a supply diversity program or yep. may not have know-how or have the resources they can now have an aggregate report that their customers can use to, to make a bigger impact in their overall spend. So that's that tier two component. It's a huge opportunity for clients to be able to leverage technology in that way. And then for businesses, it gives them the chance to be more visible, gives them a chance to get self-certified, no cost. And more and more sectors now are recognizing self-certification because they want to be more inclusive. And they don't want to impose suppliers to have to pay thousands yeah. of to be certified to show right. yeah to
1: show yeah just look them up on linkedin we like we can
2: show the size of the company where the source came from and that's what the supplier would have to show a certifying agency to get certified but they have to pay a few thousands of dollars to do it
1: i can tell you like our firm is minority owned business and wasn't certified we don't do i mean we do services so consulting and stuff but wasn't certified and i just remember them having to go through it all and it's literally ridiculous it's funny because they're like we hey we got most of the paperwork to do all this certain minority owned business it's clear like we are but they're like they need your resume and my boss is like, i've been doing this for 20 years you need my what and i'm like really like boggles wild but it's
2: a time position for yeah, business yeah. It's silly yeah okay so we see like big companies will make a no, $1 billion commitment to small diverse businesses, but they're yeah. really accounting for less than 5% of the total ecosystem. So yeah. no, no, there's an imbalance there. So we believe that democratizing certification and enabling companies to be certified at no cost is a huge opportunity for both sides to just bring more balance between the two and provide more equity, equitable yeah. opportunities for small diverse
1: businesses. I think it's also that. It's also the whole point of all these things, at least in my mind, Again, you've got more experience with this, so please correct me if I'm wrong, and what a lot of entrepreneurs need to really think about, because the playing field in which we operate as business people is regulated by the government. The goal is to make it a level playing field we can all compete on. It doesn't mean we're going to have equal outcomes because there's no way, and no sports team wins every game. Just That's just reality. But when you look at the data that you're talking about and you look at these commitments, it's still skewed way towards the people because they can afford to play the game and amplify it, actually game the game. You see this with ESG and the great intention, exactly what we want to do. But when you know ExxonMobil is like the pious in this, sort, you're like, really? Come on. It just doesn't make, it doesn't feel good. doesn't make sense. And I like what you're trying to do because again, I think if you, if the company meets a standard of quality and it does what it needs to do, it should be able to compete with everyone else in a way that makes sense. And people may say, Hey, then why do you have all these DEI programs? Why have all these ESG programs? And why, why put other people at a disadvantage just because they're bigger, or faster, or whatever. And I think the thing is that the playing field is just not level. It's just not like you, you do not have the same amount of access. For example, government contracts. If you're a small company, than you are, if you're a massive company, you just, it's just Fundamentally not, and the regulations that are written, big corporations complain about regulations, it's really in their best interest because in order to comply to those regulations, you have to have the millions and billions of dollars, like a small, per- small company can't do that. So I love the uh, this idea and it's fascinating because I do feel that as entrepreneurs, we do need to, we should compete with fair, with a fair game on a fair level playing field and see Best person win, best company win, best story win.
2: One example that I love, I was talking to the women's fund financing and one woman, we're talking about an example of working with a large bank and she says, I work with this bank and recently they told us they were using a platform to give them more visibility of who they were paying, who they were doing business already that were small and diverse. And then they reached out to us saying, hey, we've been spending money with you guys for the last five years. And you guys are very comparable to a larger firm. We're going to shift some of that spend to your firm. Are you ready to scale? And would you come and talk to other small, diverse businesses on how was it to navigate working with our organization? And this is because our technology gave visibility to a law firm. And the shift in spend had a huge impact on that firm, on their families, on their community. And as she was talking, I'm like, I'm having goosebumps because this is real-world example yeah. of how our customers are able to pull up those suppliers that they're already doing business with. And they're yeah. seeing that they're increasing spend over the last five years, so there's value being delivered. Yeah, It's only a small team that's leveraging them for a very specific type of contract. Yeah. And in this case, they're able to expand it to other areas of the business to give them more visibility and more revenue. Like, we're talking, like, I think it was, like, 300 and something percent more revenue coming from that bank because they were able to identify who it was. So that felt really, those are the types of examples. We do a lot and it's well beyond supply diversity in terms of the data we're able to enrich. But when you find use cases that give us, all of us, and our customers a greater purpose, it just feels good. It feels like we're not just helping large enterprise. Yeah, because again,
1: I think at least my experience, and again, I love your thoughts, is If your company meets the standard, like you have a standard of professionalism, process, the whole thing, like you're not some fly by night. You're not trying to be nefarious, not trying to rip people off. And generally then now, okay, now we we have established the baseline and you've met the standard, then theoretically, depending on the size of the contract and your skill set and experience... You should have equal footing with a massive company that's going to be able to outmaneuver you by whatever means. Like maybe they just have more money to. They, like best example is big company sues small company out of existence because they can't, not because it's any valid thing. They just that's their game. They know how to play, and I think that's the part of this whole DEI and ESG that gets lost in the rhetoric, because it's it is it's about fairness, but. It's also about those people that can compete at that level, getting the visibility to say, give us a shot. Not that, not that like you have to choose them because of these things. It's just, look, we do the same thing at the same level of quality. We just don't have the visibility. Well, so one of the
2: things that we believe when they are supply diversity team, and those are people typically that are really passionate about driving spend towards small diverse businesses. And sometimes it's volunteer. There's an employee that just really cares about improving diverse spend. And right now, the work that they're doing is very much about just figuring out who's small and diverse. And I believe that having the organization improve data quality and supply diversity being one of those deliverables to the supply diversity team in a way that they can consume better data, have more visibility into their baseline, then their energy right, and their resources can go to championing those companies. Educating them, educating the organization on the importance, like why do business with small diverse organizations showcase examples of how that impacts the business so that more people are motivated and sensitive and committed to the same mission. Right now, like most of our diversity team are just trying to figure out who's small and diverse and collecting information in portals yeah. and one-on-one yeah, yeah, universes. Yeah, yeah. hey, you can have such a bigger impact if you're. Trusting the data that you're getting versus spending all this time doing manual work, and so yeah. reinforcing that I, why we're so proud of what we're doing in this space, and we do the same for sustainability. So supply diversity is one, sustainability is another. Like helping yeah. organization figure out why would you do business with a company that has doesn't have necessarily the best, most ethical practices versus companies that are actually recognized and yeah. certified for actually making a commitment and driving change. Like if you have the option and if
1: it's aligned to your ethos too, I think that's the other thing that this transparency and visibility and look, if I want to do business with certain types of organizations, I want to have the best data possible. So one, I can make that intelligent choice. Two, I'm not going to get tricked and greenwashed or whatever. Right. And three, I think, which is even more important is that I actually get access to potentially better ideas, better people. And to be honest, these small and diverse companies are probably going to work a hell of a lot harder for you. Oh, you that's feel a lot more...
2: Innovation. Right? A lot more committed, right? Innovation. It's also the biggest source of risk. And so, again, just yeah. comes to you know how much visibility do you have in both. Are you able to enable innovation by optimizing? And I love... There's a chief procurement officer recently speaking at a conference. I think it was Unilever. And she said, we have unlimited resources through our supply chain. And they do, large organizations have unlimited resources in their supply chain, but they can't leverage it if they don't know yeah. who they are and how to access it and how to optimize it. hundred percent. That's about the business. I don't know if you want to go more into the journey, but it's, uh, all anyway, right, I'm very passionate. It's well, been, no, I think You're passionate th- after seven, eight years and people are like, how can you have so much energy and be so Exactly. <laughs>
1: exactly. There's clearly, again, I think there's clearly something there that- that is important to you, right? And re- this is the reason why I wanted to pull on this. To do anything for the better part of almost a decade, you gotta have some, once, obviously skin in the game. Two, you gotta be passionate about it. And three, at some point you gotta make money doing it or you're gonna starve, right? And every entrepreneur needs to just have that mentality of I'm gonna be spending the next decade, roughly, building something. I better darn well enjoy what I'm doing and have a better, bigger vision than just getting paid. Because it, literally, there's probably days again. Correct me if I'm wrong. That it's probably hard to make payroll, or you're like, ah, oh, great, COVID, ah, oh, great, supply chain mess, oh great, economy in the tank. You know. maybe well,
2: I have to say, there's a few things maybe because you asked for sound bites for entrepreneurs. The first time that when I decided to do this, and I got the support from my husband, he said two things. Don't ever put a personal financial in jeopardy for this business. And I'd like to stay married. So those are two. <laughs> good wow. Good. What a
1: good guy. That
2: was <laughs> important. That was a really good like, goal because it would have been very tempting at any point during this journey because you're so passionate. You're so committed. You're so convinced. It'd be easy to remortgage your house. And I know entrepreneurs have done it. Yes. For me, it was not an option. And so then I had to figure out other ways. And that then jeopardized our financial stability. Mm-hmm. The other piece and a mistake I've done is early on I hired two executives and I couldn't pay them their salary. And so what we ended up doing is pay them less, but we would pay them back once we were able to raise a first round and options or in cash. And I didn't do that for myself. And when we ended up raising a round after, I don't know, I think it was a year and a half or two years from that moment in time, they were able to get a lot more options and they're able to get some money in the bank. And I didn't. And thinking back, why did I not do this for myself or a portion of it back into, because I worked my tail off for two, three years and now I'm selling my company to to other people. I'm turning, I'm the founder, I'm the entrepreneur, but I'm turning more into an employee. Right. And so that was an important lesson that I think I wish I had learned early on is, Hey, what would be the value? You can't go crazy salary, but I think at the time I was paying myself fifty thousand dollars a year. I could have bumped that to hundred thousand dollars a year and say, "Hey, every year I'm not getting paid that fifty thousand difference, I'm going to get back in options once we." And so, I think you have to protect a little bit yourself in the early days. The other advice that I got, which I did do, is every time we've done a round of financing, I've done secondary, and I didn't go over the top to pull to, to sell some options in secondary, but I did enough to put money aside. So that I would be less focused or less less maybe seduced by a short term outcome and more invested in being in this to create value for my shareholders, which came in later. There's value for myself as a founder. Yeah. Matter the outcome, unless we go completely south, there should be an outcome. But and so I did during the secondary made that case that if I'm able to sell a portion of my options to put money aside so I'm more I've got some financial stability I've got money for my kids college or whatever it may be yep. that then I can focus on the long-term gain and and that's something that only a few founders have told me to do and I did and I'm so thankful I did because you never know what's going to happen like you, you never know there's so much risk in building a business the market can change A competitor can come AI may completely disrupt your business COVID could and so if you're able during those fundraising stages to get a little bit out of the table and still have a big upside to be motivated, I highly encourage if you, you can do it in your investors, but your investors should allow you to do that. So just a couple of No, that's you know,
1: great. Yeah. No. I've heard that before, I haven't done that personally. Although actually that's not true. There was a company where we, our lawyer had actually told us, "Hey, you need to when you do the next round, make sure that when if you do get it you get a little bit out of it because you need something this is yeah. such a hard game to play and i and i, I love the, those two rules don't mortgage our future we're not going to take any money out of it and i want to stay married that's a great that's a great <laughs> we're still married so that's great. and that's even warms my heart but what's interesting is that like a lot of people get think a lot of entrepreneurs think and i've actually thought this too and i had a friend of mine a mentor actually changed my mind on this a lot of investors will be like so how much are you putting into this Like, why aren't you putting your own money into your own company as a founder? And it's a valid point, but I think they misalign what putting your own money means as opposed to, I'm putting all my time into this. And believe me, my time is worth more than any money that you could ever fathom. And we'd always get this pushback. How much are you putting in? What happened? We're like, look, what? and one of the other was a founder, was actually the CEO of a company I was at. His philosophy was, if I can't get other people to put money into this, is not a good idea. So I can easily trick myself into putting money in, out after a bad idea because I'm passionate about it. But if I can't convince other people to put money into this, this is probably a bad idea. And I, that stuck with me because I'm like, you're so right. Of course, you're going to put your time into it. You're going to put a little bit of your money into it. But yeah, I would never mortgage a house. I would never do anything. I'm like, it's not worth it because why would I crush my backup? Not even my backup hit, my life, my life, especially if I have kids or a partner, and make that more stressful. No, let's. There's, there's enough stress
2: building in business if you can 100%. bring some stability. And honestly, in the early days, I just told I couldn't. I could have, but I just told investors I couldn't. And what I did though is when I hired my first two executives, they did put a check in, and that showed commitment that they believed in the idea. Mm-hmm. So they put a hundred or hundred fifty thousand dollars each into that first round, and so. They had skin in the game that gave investors a lot more confidence that they were, I had already spent two years on my own bootstrapping and I think there was enough value that was created, but yeah, those are just some, hopefully some nuggets that can help entrepreneurs think more strategically about finance.
1: Yeah. Yeah. How'd you, how'd you make, how'd you make good on the second commitment, staying married? (laughs) A lot of.
2: Oh, it's first you have to marry well. (laughs) <laughs> like to, that is absolutely it's true. It's no, nothing. Like if you're not with the right person or yeah, the yeah. person is not supportive, it's, that's just in any circumstances. I think that's the baseline. And it was hard. It's so consuming. And I'm really fortunate that I have a husband who does not want to talk about tail at all. He does. I'm forcing him to. He was on my board in the early days. He's moved since then. And I have kids who don't want to talk about tail book at all. Yes. And so... On the weekends, it keeps me more grounded. It actually forces me to have other subject of conversation and be a more interesting person.
1: <laughs> 100%.
2: We have three kids, and we made the commitment, which we haven't been as good lately, to go out every Saturday night, but we did that when our second daughter was born. And so every Saturday night, we'd have a date night, and that was, especially in the early days, like so valuable because just dressing up, being the two of you sitting at, a, at the bar having a meal, it's just no matter if you can do it, even if you go for a walk or whatever, I think spending time together is so critical and just like any relationship be transparent and he knows when i'm over stressed or things like that so i think balancing each other out he can pick up more i've got a board meeting this afternoon yeah. so he's picking up our dog yeah no and he's an entrepreneur too so it's not he's at home yeah. waiting for him wow
1: yeah no i think that's so critical i love how you put that you really got to marry the right person have the right partner it's so critical i've seen it more than not where that wasn't the
2: case and it it sucks. Didn't. i can't even imagine like if my husband and i had i can count the fights on one hand that we've had in 17 years of being married and 20 years of being together but the moment that we had fight for whatever reason that's all i can think about yeah. like i want my home base to be solid i want my relationship to be solid then it allows me to, to accomplish whatever i want if mm-hmm. that's that foundation is not there and it's not solid the distraction, the energy it's taking out of all the things I could accomplish. I think that's really important. I've had friends who've gone through some really tough times. And where do you want, like, how can you be your best person? And how do you take this energy that you're spending right now, spinning wheels, overthinking everything because you're with this person, it's not working out. I just think it would be maybe at the door. Sorry, I got one of my hits given. Anyway, but I highly encourage that, yeah, just if you're early enough and you're not married just choose your partner very well <laughs> i
1: think you can say the <laughs> same thing about co-founder too a little bit a hundred percent hundred percent so i didn't find that yeah yeah <laughs> <Stephanie>, <laughs> good advocate, not yeah the yeah <laughs> there you go stephanie thank you so much for being on the show just enlightening insightful just appreciate your time you're building something great It shows and a lot of people can learn a lot from it so thank you so much Thanks
2: for having me Thanks for listening
1: to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did creating it. My hope is that you learned something that can make you a little bit better. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do share it with friends and review it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also join my email list by visiting theentrepreneurethos.com to get my thoughts on what I'm doing to get better, as well as what I'm working on. You can also pick up my book, The Entrepreneur Ethos, if you want to learn the traits